Uh, but anyway, we've got a great guest on uh, the Skype with us, and his the name Skype. is Stefan Kinsella. Stefan, how you doing? I'm good. Good to be here. Oh, excellent, excellent. Um, okay, this I, I'm Tennyson. All right, that's uh, I'm Bosco. That's Bosco, and uh, I'm Darian. Yeah, and Bile. And Bile. There we go. All right, so uh, what are we even going to be talking? We're going to be talking about obviously IP stuff, but because um, that that's your specialty now. All right, Ste- Seven, why don't you uh, give a quick introduction for our listeners who might not be familiar with you or your works? Yeah, good. I am a, I'm in Houston. I'm a, um, a Southerner. I'm a lawyer, but I'm also a uh, senior fellow of Mises Institute, and a, um, I write a lot of articles and books on legal topics, and also I'm the editor of Libertarian Papers, one of the journals of the Mises uh, Institute. And uh, I write a lot on libertarian legal theory rights theory, and lately intellectual property, in part because I'm a practicing patent attorney and know a good deal about it and have uh, formed a lot of opinions about it over the last 18 years that I've been practicing in this area. Okay, well, for our listeners who aren't too familiar with the topic of IP, when somebody says IP, intellectual property, what are they talking about? Primarily patent and copyright. Patent covers inventions. Copyright covers um, property rights in uh, artistic or creative um, works like uh, novels and songs and software. Okay, and the uh, I guess the typical discussion is those things, uh, as people view them, exist to protect uh, the artist or the inventor in that case. Um, what would, would you say you follow with the typical idea there, or do you have a different idea than what most have, or uh, where do you fit in there? Well, I think that the uh, the primary uh, approach to this is sort of changing, um, as you see with the rise of uh, piracy and even pro-piracy sentiment and the sort of uh, increasing questioning among uh, both left-libertarian left types and other types and as well as some libertarians about the validity of intellectual property law. Um, I mean if you want me to give you a quick summary, here's what I think happened. Um, the United States was founded. They incorporated a copyright and a patent clause in the Constitution partly for utilitarian reasons. Like they thought, well, there's these sort of laws kind of forming in Europe and England right now trying to give some protection to inventors and artists and, and authors. So we're going to put something like that in the Constitution. So it was sort of part of the fabric of our Constitution since the beginning. It was never regarded as a natural right. It was sort of you know, like a utilitarian thing to encourage innovation and creativity. Um, so everyone has taken for granted that it's part and part of the fabric of a property rights type system. So you know, Ayn Rand and libertarians come along and they start thinking, well, America is the most libertarian country. So if you're in favor of property rights, you're in favor of intellectual property rights, of course. That's part and parcel of the property rights fabric. Um, but in the last I don't know, three, four, or five centuries, people have increasingly begun to question this. I was a patent attorney. I still in am a patent attorney. Centuries or decades? I'm saying decades. In the last, say, several decades, it's been heavily questioned. Um, increasingly in the last, say, two or three decades. But even since the early – about 100 years ago, there was the periodical tu- uh, Liberty by Benjamin Tucker, uh, and they were questioning it even back then. Um, but our, in our modern sort of libertarian framework, most of the modern radical libertarians, even those who are not leftist and opposed to property rights or questioning whether 
patent and copyright, which are basically monopoly privileges granted by the state, whether they are really property rights just because the government calls them property rights. Okay. So it, if uh, the original utilitarian reasons for which these were put into the Constitution, um, is there is there any questioning going on there whether or not that makes sense? I mean the idea that it, it protects the artist or it allows the artist to benefit from their work and uh, innovation would stagnate without it. Is, is there any research going on as to whether or not that's actually the case? Well, there's been a lot of research about it. I mean there's basically been continual research about it in the last century. Um, I mean so basically the, the – um, let me give you a quick history. What happened was you had these monarchs uh, who were granting monopoly privileges to favored you know, court cronies. I'll give you a, um, the monopoly on making uh, horseshoes in this town in exchange for you know, loyalty. It wasn't because they were an inventor, just because I'll give you a monopoly, and you're the only one who can do this. So that's how patents actually got their start. It was a letter patent. And then copyright was initiated because the government and the church – were very concerned about the advent of the printing press and the ability of people to start printing works without government control, without government approval. So the government imposed all these controls in the name of copyright on what could be printed. So it was basically censorship. So the origin of patent and copyright is in government favoritism, protectionism, mercantilism, censorship, and control of thought. And then as we became more democratic um, – we sort of democratized these things, and then when America was founded, you know, we put them in the Constitution because we thought, well, hey, maybe we can encourage innovation and novels and things like this with these things. Um, but you know, it was just like a hunch at best. It was a hunch by the founders that we we might need this. So in fact, the Constitution doesn't require these laws; it just authorizes Congress to pass these laws if it thinks it can use them to encourage um, innovation and science and things like this. But all of the studies that have been done that I have seen almost unanimously conclude that – well, they can't prove that they uh, – that the that copyright and patent induce a net amount of innovation or creativity or that they actually reduce the total amount of innovation or creativity because of a variety of um, negative effects of these, of these laws. Okay, I have a question. So how does one – argue against intellectual property and IP yet maintain uh, the position of a patent lawyer? Or I mean, how, how do you reconcile that kind of thing? Well, I mean, I, I came to become, you know, I'm a libertarian. And so to be honest, it never was and still is not my main interest of uh, patent law. But because I was practicing it because it was a good career to go into because of my background, um, you know, I kept wondering about how we can justify this law because um, Ayn Rand and others had come up with sort of shaky justifications for it, and they never made sense to me. So I always assumed it was valid. It's in the Constitution. Ayn Rand was in favor of it. It's considered to be part of property rights. So I kept searching for a way to justify it, and because I practiced it, I was motivated to look into it. Um, and finally, my looking into it led me to come to my current conclusions, which is that it's completely illegitimate and unlibertarian. Oh. Now, how can I practice patent law and do it? Well, um, I um, I regard myself as sort of like a tax attorney, like a – imagine a libertarian tax attorney. So you think there should be no income tax code and no income tax system, but as long as there is, your job is to defend people from the system. 
So a, t- a patent attorney can help uh, companies defend themselves from patent lawsuits and claims, which is part of what I've done. And you can also acquire patents uh, which are useful for defensive purposes. I do not and will not participate in asserting a patent against an innocent company, um, but I would not hesitate to use a patent in my arsenal of my company to defend myself if I were sued for patent infringement. So this is the primary purpose of patents nowadays. You have these companies acquiring patents primarily to prevent themselves from being sued. Right. So you have all these salaries of myself and patent attorney fees and uh, insurance, et cetera, being wasted on acquiring patents, which are used just to prevent companies from suing each other so, th- so that they can just compete with each other. Yeah, they have um, uh, lots of patent trolls out there, and everybody buys up other companies just to get at their patents that they may have had in order to get strategic leverage over other companies in certain industries or potential industries that they may enter into, like between Apple and HP and all the other lawsuits that are happening right now. That's correct. Now, now patent trolls are a special case. Patent trolls um, um, are a little bit harder to defend against because they actually usually don't make anything so it's less likely that they would be infringing one of, say, my company's patents. So if they sue me, I have less I can sue them, countersue them for. Um, now, I'm not a big opponent of patent trolls. I mean, patent trolls are just a um, a result of the patent system. Right. It, it, criticizing patent trolls is like criticizing people who take welfare or social security. I mean, it's like you know, if you if the government uh, puts out a big pig trough and says, "Come and get it." And then you criticize the pigs for coming and munching at the trough. It it makes no sense. You shouldn't put the trough out. You shouldn't steal the money to put in the trough in the first place. Um, so if you have a patent system, you will have patent trolls. But what exactly is a patent troll for people who aren't familiar oh, with the good term? Good question. Okay, I can defi- I can define that. So that's a, a derogative or pejorative term that has arisen in the last five or ten years um, to describe a company that asserts a patent that they own. That they do not uh, – that, that doesn't cover a, a product or technology that they actually sell. So there's this bizarre idea that um, – which is just totally misplaced uh, – that um, the patent system was designed to protect your own product. Well, of course it's not. The patent system is designed to protect the invention that you file an application for. So the patent system explicitly permits you to – File a piece of paper with the patent office, a patent application, and you do not have to have a working model of the invention. You don't ever have to – I mean literally you could wake up one morning, have a brainstorm, sit down and jot something down in five minutes on your your computer and have a patent attorney clean it up and just file it. And that is called what's a constructive reduction to practice. So in other words, you're supposed to reduce it to practice, which means make a working model. But if you don't do it, when you file this piece of paper with the patent office, that counts as a substitute for that. So you could basically just have all these ideas which may not work in practice and which may not be practicable or profitable. And um, so a patent troll is a company typically that buys up these patents that have accumulated. Now, if a patent is a property right, there's nothing wrong with selling it or buying it. So you'll have a company that will accumulate a group of patents in a given technology area. And then they become powerful because they have a lot of patents in an area, and they have the power to use the courts of the state to sue 
to get money from or to actually enjoin or stop um, their competitors. Actually, it's not even their competitors. It's just companies that they want to target. Right. Um, and usually they would just want money from them. So you'll have a patent troll who will just have 100 patents or 500 patents in a portfolio will just launch a lawsuit against some company. And this company gets a uh, they gets a they get a complaint, and they're accused of copying or stealing or using this company's patents. Usually, when they've never even heard of this company's patents, because most patent lawsuits have nothing to do with copying. Most patent lawsuits are suits by a patent holder against a, an innocent infringer who has independently invented their own idea, and it just happens to step on one of the uh, steps of a patent claim buried in the millions of patents in the patent office. Um, so basically they just use it as an excuse to extort money from these companies. It's like a, it's like a private tax. Okay. Mm. So uh, from, from how you're describing it, basically to summarize, um, it, it seems like the, the reason it was originally initiated was bad. And then it was put into the constitution um, not necessarily in a strict uh, property rights way, like the way people think of it. Um, it was it was placed in there as as basically an option, and at the time, effectively an experiment. And a lot of bad stuff has arisen because of it. So, if let's say tomorrow, by some magic, uh, uh, intellectual property law, pressing a button, yes, intellectual property law were to go away. And these these protections and these things like this were to disappear. Um, other than being out of a job, um, if you can use your crystal ball, what do you think would happen? What would be the effect on uh, industry as we know it? Okay, so that's a multifaceted question. L l let me answer it a few ways. Number one, uh, we we couldn't abolish it right away for several reasons. Number one, there's too many corporate interests that would oppose it, but l let's ignore that. Number two, there are several international treaty systems that the United States has pushed and has implemented and gotten in place, which would make it uh, impossible for us to abolish our patent and copyright law in their current form without being a breach of international law. So basically we cannot change these laws substantially without um, being um, um, international criminals. So um, it's, it's almost impossible to do so. Um, and yes, I agree that they were put in place for um, utilitarian reasons or prudential reasons, but and not natural rights reasons, which which is basically uh, admitted by the original founders. Even John Locke um, acknowledged that intellectual property could not be justified by his sort of uh, homesteading theory of property rights, which was the founding, which was the, the kind of the fundamental principle the founders relied on. Um, so. But but let's ignore all that, and let's say that we abolish patent and copyright law. Well, I wouldn't be out of a job right away because um, you know there's going to be a lot of cleanup for about 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years because of this big mess, just like um, there is in the Soviet Union after it collapsed, and like there may be in Egypt if it collapses. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, a cleanup, um, and uh, I think there would be a resort in a private system to using attorneys to have trade secrets. And contract law and uh, lots of other agreements, which, by the way, are prohibited by antitrust law now. So in other words, you could imagine a free society where there's no state or there's not a significant state a regulation of what's going on. There's no patent law, no copyright law, but there's also, also no antitrust law. So I, I don't 
deny that there would be cartels and uh, regional associations and groups that would try to form agreements to control content and things like this. This should be permitted as long as it's not a violation of anyone's property rights. Um, but I don't think that they would be very successful in the long run. I think basically you would have to, as an entrepreneur, find a way to make a profit off of your service. And if that service involves a lot of intellectual content that can be easily copied, then it, it is your task to try to find a way to profit from it despite the fact that it can be copied or emulated, etc. Remember, emulation and copying is what is the market is all about and is what human society is all about. There is nothing wrong with learning. There's nothing wrong with the accumulation of knowledge. There's nothing wrong with competition. And with competitors emulating what you're doing that pleases the market and trying to do as good a job or a better job or halfway a good a job as you're doing. So this is all part of the market, all part of freedom, all part of um, um, the society that we, you know, we want to live in that is free. Um, so l let me give an example. Back in the 1950s, I mean, we all have these images of drive-in movie theaters, and we all think of them as having these little tiny speakers set beside each car. Now, this didn't start out this way. They started out with loudspeakers like movie theaters indoors have now. Well, they found out that there were people driving next door, you know, sitting on the hills nearby or whatever, watching the movie and listening to it for free, free riders. Now, instead of going to the government and trying to get a law passed to say it is illegal to sit on in your car on a on a public road or on your own property and watch what is being displayed on a nearby movie screen, what what do they do? They use their entrepreneurial creativity to think of how can we try to internalize and capture some of the profit? How can we stop these free riders? So they said, well, let's spend a little bit of money, install these speakers, and people will drive their cars in. And then everyone sitting on the hills nearby won't be able to hear what's going on, and they, they'll have an incentive to come in and pay for the movie. So that's, that's just a tiny example of what you have to do in the free market if you're an entrepreneur and you realize the fact that the value of what you produce is a combination of content, which can be easily replicated, and scarce resources. So this is this is uh, similar to uh, this uh, story that came out today that apparently Coca-Cola's secret recipe has been released. And as I understand, they didn't use any sort of copyright or whatnot to uh, safeguard safeguard the secret, and it's been this recipe since like 1887 or something. I didn't hear that story, but from what I've heard about Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola's um, recipe for Coke is, is always given as the, as the classic example of trade secret. So you asked me earlier what intellectual property was, and I mentioned patenting copyright, and those are the two big um, main and evil types of IP. The other two classic types are trademark and trade secret. Now, trademark is just um, a mark that you use that tells people who this product or service is coming from. So it's just an identification or communication thing. A trade secret is just something you keep secret. So it's just some formula or knowledge that you have that you don't reveal to the world that gives you a competitive advantage. So these are the four big types of IP law, patent, which is inventions, copyright, which is artistic or creative works, um, trademark and trade secret. Okay, So the Coca-Cola formula 
uh, probably would not be protectable by copyright because it's not creative. It wouldn't be protectable by patent because it's too simple. It's just a recipe for um, um, a food, and it's not a trademark, although the symbol for Coca-Cola is a trademark. So they keep it secret. But from what I've read and studied, and I, I can't guarantee this, but you could check, check up on Snopes or Wikipedia. My understanding is that the, secret, the Coca-Cola recipe is actually not secret. It's pretty well known around the world. It's just that other companies don't want to use it because they want to distinguish themselves by, make, by making their own drinks like RC Cola or Pepsi Cola or, or, or whatever. So this recent story you're talking about, I don't know anything about it. But the way trade secret law works is if you make reasonable steps to keep your trade secret secret and it, re and it gets revealed – so long as it's not publicly revealed to the world at large, you can go to the court and ask a court of the state to issue an injunction against the people that have learned about it they shouldn't have, and you can tell them you can't tell anyone about this under penalty of going to jail basically. So that's what how trade secret law is enforced. So even trade secret law has questionably uh, unlibertarian um, aspects. So how do you think uh, trade secrets would work in a libertarian society, or would there be an entirely different concept to, to go along with it? I think it would be similar to what we have now, but I do think you wouldn't be able to rely on a court to issue an injunction against a third party who, are never, who never had a contract with you. Now, you might be able to get such an injunction or some kind of penalty against a former employee who left, but I think what would happen is you would have companies that would make a strategic choice. They would say… I have a secret. Now, if I sell this product that embodies a secret, like I mean, let's say you have a new mousetrap. You can't sell that mousetrap that has your new idea and keep it secret. Some some secrets are revealed in the product themselves. So you have a choice to make. Do I keep it secret and and you know, be glad that I came up with some neat idea that no one can use except me? Or do I want to make a profit from it? But the price of doing that is I reveal it to the world. This is just the normal, you know, choice every business faces all the time. So you would have some things being kept secret like customer lists and maybe some internal procedures or processes. And if you want to sell a product that has a new product, of course you're going to reveal the secret because you want to trumpet that secret. You want to tell people, buy my new mousetrap. I have a new feature that is much better than my competitors. And this is the way the market works, right? You have one competitor leapfrogging above the other by improving upon what has been gone, done before. And the, the, the public benefits from this, and everyone is always um, under uh, an incentive to keep improving um, their products. All right. You, uh, for those just tuning in, you're listening to thinkingliberty.net. We're interviewing Stefan Kinsella about intellectual property. And Stefan, I, I have a question. We're talking uh, about – we've mentioned a lot about patents and uh, a little bit on trade secrets. Um, but I, I want to – Focus a little bit on copyright. Um, sure. It seems like that's kind of the area where a lot of people are coming into conflict with intellectual property law with <clears throat> illegal downloading and file sharing. Um, and as uh, you know, as as a writer myself and familiar with kind of the mindset of writers, uh, there's this this fear of I guess other people profiting from your work when they shouldn't. So. Um, I, I guess I, I want to have your take on, I guess, file sharing and the, um, the, the mindset of a writer who wants to basically make money from their work and not 
in their percept in, from their perception get ripped off. Well, okay, so I, I, I would look at it a few ways. Num- number one, um, as Cory Doctorow, who's a sort of quasi open source um, science fiction author, as he he wrote in one of his um, interesting articles, uh, the main um, the main problem that an author faces is not being pirated; it's, it's obscurity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, not everyone is Stephen King. So most authors are happy when their when their works are reproduced because it gets their name out there, it gets their reputation made, it gets people interested in them, etc. I mean, you know, I write lots of blog blog posts and articles for Mises.org, etc. I don't get paid for that, so I'm happy when people copy it. Um, number two, some people do do things for profit, but the fact that other people might profit from it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily threaten me. In other words, see, there's an implicit idea that um, – by, by the way, let me just recommend there is a really good uh, podcast, which I just blogged about yesterday on the Mises blog, which was the This Week in Law podcast, twit.tv. I think it's slash twill, T-W-I-L. It's the most recent episode, and Nina Paley, who's a friend of mine who's an artist, was on there, and she was talking – and she's she's not really a libertarian type. She's kind of quasi-lefty, but even she says like the, the problem with this creative commons mentality is that it's this non-commercial mentality. Like, oh, I'm okay with you copying my work if it's not for non-commercial purposes, but you can't do it for commercial purposes. Well, think about – there's a couple of problems with, with that. Number one, it's really hard to d- distinguish between commercial and non-commercial. I mean – if I uh, incorporate you know, one of your pictures into one of my blog posts on my blog – now, my blog is primarily non-commercial, but I have Google AdSense revenue okay, for ads. So is it commercial? I don't know. So I don't think that there's an objective distinction between commercial and non-commercial. And number two, what is wrong with other people wanting to make a profit off of what they do? In other words, um, you know, artists are not opposed to money. They should have money, so we shouldn't try to penalize people from using our works just because they can make money off of it. It's not like it hurts us. Um, and the other thing is, I think we have to distinguish between um, this idea of theft. So we are so used to thinking of our IP and our works as our property because the government has labeled it that way in the last fifty years for propaganda purposes. It never used to be called property. It used to be called monopoly, um, but it's labeled that way now because it has a, a propaganda purpose. You know, it sort of sounds like it's something you own. Um, so then, when you say, "Well, someone is stealing your work," but that is what is, I believe, is an overuse of a metaphor, because you know, if you take my my car or my bicycle or my wallet, the reason that I object to it. And I call it theft is because I don't have it anymore. I mean, you've taken it from me. But if you could somehow like look at my car and just create a duplicate car in the blink of an eye in your driveway, I mean, would I really object to that in the same way? Would I call it theft? I mean, I still have my car, right? So the problem is when you copy a file, you don't really deprive the person you copied it from of their copy. So when you call it theft, it's like a dishonest or illegitimate argument because you're you're trying to fit it into the paradigm of theft of physical property, but the same negative consequences don't flow 
to the you know to the person you a quote quote unquote stole from okay real quick i want to get uh your take on the creator endorsed mark i think i might have actually heard of it thanks to a post from you yeah that is a um so um that's an idea that was um come up with by uh carl fogel who is the um um, the guy who runs questioncopyright.org, which Nana Paley is affiliated with, and they are both on the board of uh, advisors of my uh, Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, C4SAF.org. And they're trying to find alternatives to the current um, state copyright kind of system. Now, uh, and I'll explain it, but let me just say as a preface that I think that these kind of ideas are sort of doomed in the womb because um, pe- people can rely on copyright now. So there's a there's not much of an incentive to to try to rely on these things because we do have copyright. But as an experimental idea of one kind of you know mechanism or social um, uh, mechanism we can rely on or use in the absence of IP. It's, it's a creative idea, and Nina Paley has a related idea, by the way, called Copy Heart. Um, copy Heart. So the, cre- the create endorsed mark is the idea that, look, let's imagine there's no copyright on a work, but you as the author of the work will agree to endorse the sale of the work by some seller, some authorized seller, and they can put on the mark – they can put on the work CE or creator endorsed. So the idea is that customers or fans of the author who want to buy this work, some of them, at least some of them, would prefer to buy a CE endorsed mark because they would prefer their money. If they're going to buy them, if they're going to buy a work, they instead of buying a pirated copy of it, they would prefer to buy a copy um, where some of the profits go to the original author. So that is one idea of how um, creators could be rewarded to some extent for their creations absent copyright law. Okay, um, I, I actually had a question on your mousetrap example, jumping back a little bit. But sure. uh, it, when somebody builds a better mousetrap, uh, you basically said that there was two options. Uh, I see a third option. What if you went like the uh, the EULA route and you entered into a contract with everybody who purchased your mousetrap, was... basically saying that they're not going to disclose the secrets of how your mousetrap works? Yeah, I had a whole thing on a uh, question on this as well, so it's a good thing you brought it up. Yeah, is, is that feasible? Do you see something like that happening? Okay, so and this was Murray Rothbard um, started to address these issues in the Ethics of Liberty, um, and he basically came out against um, patent law as it currently exists. But he said, well, a variant of copyright law could exist by this contractual scheme that you're sort of you know getting at here. The problem is, and I don't want to get too deep into legal theory, but in the law we have rights that are called in personam versus in rem. That is a right you can assert against another person or a right that's a, a property right. In rem means a property right. Um, so in personam is more a, a right that can be generated by a contract between people. But in rem means a right that's good against the whole world. And for anything like a patent-type system to exist, which is what you're talking about when you talk about um, trying to protect the inventive aspect of a new design of a mousetrap – um, you have to be able to stop everyone in the world, not just people you've made a contract with. 
so Rothbard's argument was this, and he was, I think, scrambling to try to find a way you could you could salvage part of patent law under the copyright um, aegis. So what he said was this: you know, if you have a new mousetrap and you sell a physical copy of it to someone. You only sell that copy to them, but you don't sell to them the right to copy it. You keep that to yourself so that, that if a third party learns – sees it and learns of this new idea from it, they never got the right to re replicate it from the original or from the purchaser. Um, now, the problem with this is it's sort of uh, – it, 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 it goes into a confusion about the nature of property rights. It assumes that there is a property right in knowledge or information. But if you take the normal Rothbardian approach to property or, or libertarian approach to property, then what you would say is um, as a person, you have the right to do whatever you want to do with your property okay, as long as you don't commit aggression. You don't have to give permission from anyone to do anything you want with your property. So you know, I have the right to um, um, have a camping party with my son on my lawn tonight at midnight if I want to. Uh, with my own tent, but I don't have to find a right to have a you know a camping party with my son. I can just do it because I own the lawn and I own the tent. I don't have to get permission from anybody. I can do it as long as I'm not infringing anyone anyone's rights. Okay, so th the idea that you can use this contractual approach that you sort of alluded to assumes that there's ownership of information because if there's not ownership of information. A third party who merely sees this mousetrap but has never signed a contract or never purchased the con ne never purchased the mousetrap, if he learns about it, he's free to use this information to do whatever he wants with his own property. This is how you know life works. We learn things, and the knowledge that we acquire in different ways throughout life guides our actions, which means helps us determine what to do with things that we own. Okay? So the, the basically the bottom line is if the mousetrap seller could theoretically bind a given seller, I'm sorry, a given buyer of his mousetrap, even if he could do that, still third parties would learn about how this mousetrap is configured and they are not bound by a contract. So this cannot ensnare them. Which means other people will be free to make the mousetrap because they've learned about it. They can use this idea to configure their own property in the same way. Okay, all right. So I, that was a good thing. It actually addressed the, the third party thing. Now I had a discussion with a guy a while back, and we were all talking about, uh, uh, for example, downloading things uh, from torrents uh, that were actual torrents of uh, cable television shows. And uh, you're saying, like, well, you know, it's a contractual agreement that the person makes with, say, HBO or whatever, and what about that contract thing? So my question would be uh, libertarian replication of the IP system via contract, and what are the consequences for a breach of contract in a libertarian system? Like, What, do you, what could that uh, be? Okay, well, that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, um, l let me say a couple things about that. Number one, it's hard to predict – what a libertarian society would look like right because right now everything we do is sort of hemmed in and um influenced heavily by the existence of a sort of undergirding infrastructure of ip law so everything we see now is heavily constrained by existing ip law 
Absent that, I think it would be radically different. So you cannot take too many lessons from how it's done now. Um, number two, your question requires a um, in-depth analysis of libertarian contract theory. Right. And there's a lot of debate about this. There's um, debate about whether uh, contract law can be enforced um, um, against the person of another person, whether there's inalienability or alienability. Uh, whether you can you know sell your body into slavery or right. agree to being punished if you violate a, a right. Now, my personal view, and I have reasons for this. My personal view is the following: I follow the Evers Rothbard title transfer theory of contract, which is that uh, contract is merely the ability to assign title to things that you own to other people, um, and you can put conditions on it or or whatever. Um, so it's just exchanges of title to property, um, and that there's also you cannot uh, agree to be physically punished on your body in the future unless you commit aggression. Okay. So, I mean, that's my approach to it. So I think what would happen is you might have these cartels and these music companies try to get these agreements put in place where everyone agrees to them or a large number of people agree to them. Um, you know, you might have an iTunes or a Netflix or a cable tv company and or even a movie theater you know you know if you go, go see a movie you buy an eight dollar ticket for a movie and you have to sign a little $8. thing saying wow. it's cheap well, out what, there whatever they are now <laughs> <laughs> i'm discounting it because i've been seeing 3d lately i guess it's 16 dollars <laughs> lately all right 12 dollar movie ticket and um you know by buying this um, movie ticket you agree to opt into this entire intellectual property re contractual regime which says that in the future, for the rest of your life, you know, if you ever pirate a movie, you're going to be, you know, sued for ten thousand dollars, etc. Now, I don't deny that there would be some motivation for some of these content creators to try something like that, but I don't think they would be successful at all. I think they would be laughed at, they'd be a joke, and people would not patronize them. Um, and I think there's good arguments that these contracts would not be enforceable in the first place. That's what I think as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. so I, I think it's a, I think it's a non-starter, and I, I don't think it's going to work. I think that basically people have to accept the fact that um, now this gets into Austrian economics and um, libertarian theory a little bit, but I think the way you have to conceptualize it is this, and it's not that really um, um, hard to understand. Human action, every human action that we all perform, whether it's entrepreneurial or personal or private or whatever, no matter how you generalize it is the use of means to change the state of affairs that would otherwise happen. But so in other words, every human action uses scarce resources to try to change what's going to happen. But what you decide to do and what you choose to try to aim at is guided by knowledge that's in your head. So you have to distinguish the role of scarce resources in human action and knowledge or information. Now, scarce resources are things that you use to accomplish things, things that you interact with causally in the universe to try to change what's going to happen or to, tr to try to achieve what you want to achieve. The knowledge in your head informs you about the universe of choices that you have ahead of you. Uh, it tells you what you could possibly achieve. It tells you the ways to achieve it, the means. So if you imagine um, someone baking a cake, right? Using their grandma's recipe, if I'm going to bake this cake, 
I need to have the sole right to use certain scarce resources like the mixing bowl and the spoon and the eggs and the you know and the and the and the dough whatever but the recipe that guides my hands to make this cake um could be used by someone else at the same time so this is why we have property rights we have property rights in the things that cannot be used by more than one person at the same time like the mixing bowl or the spoon if someone takes my bowl from me and my spoon, I can't make the cake. But if someone else has their own bowl and their own spoon and their own ingredients and their own oven and their own kitchen, etc., and their own body, but they're using my grandma's recipe to make the cake, that doesn't prevent me from making the cake. We can both use the recipe at the same time. So we have to think clearly about the, ro the role of knowledge and the role of scarce resources as it relates to human action. Okay. And this is this is why there's property rights in resources. And this is why property rights in knowledge makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, so that actually dealt with uh, my first question when I was going to get into, but Darian wants to say something. Okay, about. well, I just want to point out that we only have a few minutes left on this segment, so uh, let's get in uh, as much as we can here. All right, cause sure, he, go ahead. Yeah, he he had already uh, hit on this and said, no, the similarity of uh, the similarity of between IP and other types of property. This is the, where the question was going. So I've heard some Ann Sox that is a socialist anarchist and Ann Combs is communist anarchist say that just as IP is simply a state-enforced social construction that prevents people from being free to do what they want, regular property works that same way and so and i mean i don't know if you've ever heard this argument from ann socks and Ancoms about uh, like seeing the light on ip that you should also see the light on regular property that property is illegitimate and that it's a social construction that does away with liberty and if you want to be you no know, truly libertarian you have to do away with this concept of property yes i've heard that before and i think that um uh, so so my view is this i'm a rothbardian Anarcho – I won't say anarcho-capitalist. I'll say anarcho-libertarian. And uh, I mean look, everyone has a theory of property rights. Right. Pro property rights just means who you think has the right to control a given scarce resource. Even um, if you call it possession, it's still uh, it's well, still right, property. Right. Yeah. Now, if you, if you think there's no right to so, – so, so I would think ownership is the right to possess. Possession is sort of like actual control. But if you want to move beyond a world of, of might makes right and you know war of all against all, then we, we want to talk about who has the right to control these things. Mm -hmm. And every, every, every political system has a view of this, you know, communism, um, social democracy, whatever. They all, if, if you point to a given scarce resource, you know, like a factory or a piece of land or whatever, they will have an answer for you about who gets to control it, whether it's the Politburo. Or the collective, or the voters in democracy, or the union, or the homesteader, or whatever. They all have an answer, and that is their property rights theory. So no one is against property rights. Everyone has a different view of how to assign property rights. The libertarian view is what is unique against all the others. What we say is you should assign the property right to the person who has the best claim to or connection to it. Because our goal is to try to find a way that humans can live together in society and live productively and peacefully and cooperatively and that we can use these resources as means to action without having physical violence or conflict over them, which is wasteful and destructive and harmful. Okay, So if you want to be able to use resources constructively, 
You have to know who has the right to use it. That's all. And the only way to do that is to assign that resource to the person with the best and most objective and fair claim to it. <clears throat> and the libertarian answer is that that is the person who had the first claim to it, the homesteader, for example, or wh whoever he gave it the property to. Because otherwise, um, the, the, a latecomer or someone who came later could claim it. So of course the Lockean libertarian idea comes out of this idea of reducing conflict, finding a peaceful way to live among each other. All right. Yes. Yeah, see, the um, I, I can imagine them continuing saying like, well, the, you've, as you've admitted, the justification for the property rights or the what we're looking for in the end is a way that human beings can live together, use the scarce resources that uh, make up existence and uh, the matter of reality, and have a non-conflicting, uh, non-violent interactions with one another. So it's in order to make peace with one another. And if things you know, go beyond that, then probably there there might be a conflict. Uh, so they would say that uh, opening the the gate, saying that property is legitimate, would make it in such a way that you could uh, legitimize uh, massive accumulation or unlimited accumulation. And so once you've given that uh, that gateway, then someone else could simply take uh, could have possession over everything, while other people have possessions over nothing, and you could be legitimized. But that would be conflict between people. I mean, if somebody is going to be a tyrant, they don't need a technicality to do it. They're not going to say, oh, right. you but left me this tiny yeah. loophole, now yeah. I'm going to use it to rule you. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are other... Should anybody respect it, though? I mean, if we're going to start from first principles and use that kind of thing, we should, should, uh, or we'd should have to be on the side of the person who is the massive accumulator, or like someone who bought uh, land in a circle around somebody else, or homesteaded land in a circle around somebody else. So, 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 so let me just uh, mention some, a couple of things. I, in a way, I reject the confusions. It's like a false dichotomy that's accepted by both the right and the left, right? So the right tends to accept that property right is, is legitimate but that IP is a type of property right. So their mistake is assuming that um, IP is a type of property right. And the left rejects IP because they reject property in general. And their mistake is rejecting property in general. Now, I will say that I appreciate some of the reasons that they are skeptical of or hostile to property because um, partly it's a semantic debate, right? They are objecting to the historical um, Uses. process process by which property has been assigned in partly in part by the state. Mm. Um, now, my personal view is that, and this is a little bit off the IP topic, but it's the Rothbardian view that, look, if we if we dissolve the state tomorrow, would we, you know, would we would we, we find a guy that's worth five million dollars and has a big house and take his house and distribute it equitably <laughs> among everyone, or would we say, look, as long as you've been using it peacefully, it's a resource and you've acquired it without collaboration with the state to you know steal it from someone else. I would say let holdings be you know let people have what they have and let it go from there now for for the state and for people that are in close collaboration with the state that's a different matter i would I would look at that as a common resource that can be um redistributed or or, or distributed to to claimants with a restitution claim everyone who's a victim of the state now everyone's going to get one cent on the dollar or less. You know, but still, you know, just distribute it fine, or by an auction or whatever method. I don't care. 
But some things are not owned by the state. I mean, you know, the the uh, the public forests let let them be homesteaded or or auction them off. That's fine. But a house that I own that I paid for and that the government you know recognized my title to, I would say let that owner maintain ownership of that house. So in that respect, I would not go with the left libertarian um, hostility towards property and just jettison everything. Okay. All right. Uh, should I continue with my, my series of questions or um, should, do you want to get I jump think in we've here? Gotta, we've got to wrap this up. Uh, so, uh, okay. Stefan, thanks a lot for being on with us, and uh, it was a great talk uh, with you. Is there anything that you want to uh, bring up to our listeners for where they can go for more information or anything you want to promote while you're on the air? Well, I would just say I'm giving um, – um, I'm teaching a Mises Academy course right now on libertarian legal theory, and I will be teaching the second um, version of my intellectual property course in March. So if you're interested in the Mises Academy courses on these or related topics, you can go to academy.mises.org. And that's uh, – Mises is M-I-S-E-S, correct? Correct. All right, and you mentioned the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom earlier also. That's uh, Yes, you can find some of my IP-related uh, rantings and commentary <laughs> at c4saf.org. Okay. And I will be in uh, New York on uh, Friday for a debate at NYU Law School. I think it will be YouTube later, though. I don't think it's going to be live. So um, that's what I have going on right now. Oh, interesting. Oh, okay. So that's this Friday. Uh, is it uh, free – uh, admission or how's it? It work? is free, actually. Um, if you uh, actually, if you email me, I'll hook you up with it. Um, it's at NYU School of Law, and it's a uh, intellectual property panel um, by a bunch of law professors. But they have agreed to let me give my libertarian take on things. Um, I'm the only non-law professor on the panel. Um, several of my friends are showing up already: Nina Paley and uh, her crew, and uh, some of my other friends. Um, if you Actually, it's on my blog somewhere, stephankinsella.com. I have a, um, an entry about it, stephankinsella.com, and it's also at c4sif.com. Or if you email me, I can get you an invitation if you want to attend in, in New York City on Friday at like 2 p.m. 2, 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. All right. So All right. I'd like, I have to get you up against uh, Gene Epstein one of these days. So it'll be an interesting thing to have you on there. I'd be happy to do it. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Stefan. And we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to have more Thinking Liberty. So stay tuned. Okay. I want to tell you a story about a little man, if I can. A gnome named Grimble Grumble and little gnomes stay in their homes. Eating, sleeping, drinking their wine He wore a scarlet tunic, a blue-green hood It looked quite good He had a big adventure amidst the grass Fresh air at last Whining, dining, biding his time And then one day, hooray, another way for gnomes to say Ooh, I 
Oh, well, Bile wasn't using it, though. <laughs> I deserve it because I didn't say IP freely at all. <laughs> I love it, though. I mean, he's uh, uh, Stefan's a great guy. I mean, he's, he's got, obviously, a, a very firm basis in this, and he can speak intelligently about a lot of different aspects of it. I, I oh, yeah. think it's good. We've got to get him on here again, definitely, to talk some more. Yep. All right, so, Bosco, you said you got some books. Oh, okay, yeah. So, I... I have two interesting things happen to me today. One, I had a catastrophic book bag failure okay. in the middle of the day. So I actually had to go out and purchase another book bag because you pretty much can't do your job as a teacher unless you have a bag to carry crap around in. Wow. And my bag failed what to the point your... that duct tape couldn't even fix it. What about your office? Like you could just put things I, in. I, the, <laughs> public schools don't have offices. Okay. What about your classroom? I, I, I share a closet with five other people. <laughs> This is what I do. Five, and other, five people? other people. And I sit at a, a little cabinet where there's no room for my legs underneath. So I sit sideways <laughs> and then I twist my body and I type stuff. So it's... would uh, education be improved if we gave a contractor $5 million to build an extra closet for you? <laughs> extra closet. Um, Probably not much. It'd probably just make people lazy. But anyway, so I bought this shiny new book bag. All right. So I got this it's pretty book nice bag looking. That, yeah. Nobody can see it, but it's blue. And inside it are two books that I got in the mail. So uh, you guys want to try to guess what's in there? I'll give you each a guess. How's that sound? Um, hmm. Okay, you got some sort of marble notebook in there? Uh, okay, there's your guess. What's yours, Darren? I'm going to go for a Prudhomme book. A Prudhomme book? Does Bile have a guess or he doesn't care? He's like, eh, it's another stupid game. All right, so the first book is How Children Fail by John Holt. All right. Anybody heard of this book? I have not. You have not heard of this book. Okay, I've well, heard of this book. All right, there you go. It's it's apparently a, a relatively popular book, popular enough that you can get it for $2 used. All right, and um, it says, a uh, best-selling book that tells why bright children do so badly in school has already become a classic. John Holt, kind of a, a interesting character in the unschooling movement and all that other stuff going on, and I got this as a result of an argument I was having with a coworker. and... Is John Holt still alive? Uh, I don't know if he's still alive. You got me. Book looks pretty old. Yeah, it does. The, That's why I asked. <laughs> the other one, even older, is Summerhill, A Radical Approach to Child Rearing by A.S. Neal. Anybody ever heard of that guy? Rearing a Child? Rearing a Child, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, A.S. Neal, you say? Yes, I did. No, I don't know that one. Consequently, oh. by the way, uh, his last name is the same as my middle name. Huh, interesting. Good deal. Yeah, John Holt died in 1985. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. There you go. So you missed it by a few years. All right. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of overlapped him a little, I guess. But going going the uh, libertarian education route, the or, or an option in libertarian education. All right. So uh, your assignment books. is to read those books and then get 
someone as a guest on that you can discuss this with? Uh, I don't think you'd want this guy as a guest. He's the guy. He's the kind of person who believes that the more words you fit into your response, the firmer your argument. So when I discuss things with him, it tends to be me sitting there for 20 minutes. And then I go, okay, well, I, I wrote down the following things you said that I disagree with. This because of this. This because of this. This because of this. Then you repeated yourself a few times, and then this, and then this. Uh, I, I meant someone on, like, uh, free schooling and things like that. Not, oh, okay. We could probably track somebody down like that. The the interesting yeah, we could thing... We Gato on here if you want. Yeah, that's that's true. We probably could get him. Did I say I saw him speak at, uh, at Rutgers, and I actually drug a coworker who was living there near there with me at the time drug and a co-worker yes yes i drugged him and brought him there that's no. what it sounded like so, <laughs> exactly what you said so we went to see uh, we went to see gato and uh gato gave his little or he said he wasn't going to give his spiel he said he's going to talk about whatever the heck we want to hear about so people asked him questions until one in the morning when they closed down the room and they're like gato you need to leave and he's like okay i can't answer questions anymore and then we split so it was really just like this question and answer session with him for a long time i actually taught or not taught i had one of his books done as a book study for professional development which was kind of interesting so i had i managed to get a bunch of teachers to to read that book and give their comments on it. The book was a different kind of teacher, which is a collection of essays. How'd that go? Well, the only reason I could get away with it is because it's called a different kind of teacher as opposed to, like, weapons of mass instruction. How about or... the, the seven-lesson school teacher? What was that? How about the seven-lesson school teacher? That probably would have gotten by, too, just because yeah. the title's benign. All they ever <laughs> do is they check the titles on these things. So uh, I so got it bring it gun the... to school day, uh, probably not going to Yeah, bring gun to school day, not going to cut it. Not at all. Not not in the slightest. You're a bad man, and so you, <laughs> we can't have you do this. But anyway, I got some more books about this interesting thing because people looked at me. I had a uh, a uh, not a department meeting. I had a yeah a department meeting today. Sorry, not a faculty meeting. And uh, they were talking about the ID enforcement policy and stuff like that, and why it needs to be enforced. And the question was, it's like, well, why do you think students don't wear their IDs? Huh. And my response was, I don't think they feel that it's important. To wear their IDs. And I think if you could convince the students that it was important that they wear their IDs, then they would wear their IDs. And they said, well, how do you think you should do that? And I said, well, we should have a rules committee. And they're like, yeah, we already have that. And I was like, and it should be, uh, you know, 50% teachers and it should be 50% students. And they freaked out. They're like, you can't have students on the rules committee. I was like, why not? They're the ones who have to, according to you, have to follow the rules. So they should have a say in the rules committee. And Nobody liked that. There's well, no representation here. I, apparently not. People these, thought it was it was a bad idea. We're simply talking about subjects, and these subjects simply need to listen to their masters and betters, and they will they will you know succeed. They will uh, well, prosper. You know, I give people ample opportunity. I'm like, please, please, um, tell me why it's so important that uh, you know people wear their IDs because safety. Nine well, Eleven, Columbine. That's, that's that's all they're gonna say. <laughs> that's it. It's gonna, there's gonna be a few more like articles thrown in there, but that that's basically what they're gonna say people people shout that stuff all the time and i'm like well that's that's awesome i appreciate your concern can you show me statistics or things like that and nobody wants to do any of the footwork with coming I, up with statistics i am aware of 9 11 <laughs> well, if you look at the statistics you look at the people who've looked into this stuff like let's say you're like me and you got a big problem with lockdown drills and you look into the research the people who've done most of the research is uh the secret service and basically the conclusion they've come to is what really matters is what you do before the incident and what you do in the first eight minutes of the incident and the cops really don't play much of a big role so it's like ah uh, okay that seems to be a pretty 
pretty stark case against the lockdown drill idea, um, you know, as come up with by these people who have researched it. But people don't really like research. They like FUD. Research? Uh, I, <laughs> I don't want to like, look just, again. Just give me enough to pass. That's all. <laughs> I, yeah. Tell me what the answer is. <laughs> yeah, my, my thought on uh, when we started having or supposed to wear IDs in, in high school was – this is this is just them conditioning to uh, conditioning people to control us better to to show IDs on command to be tagged like cattle. You know, I even have more respect for the teachers who just outright, you bring your gun to school, <laughs> who just outright say that if they're like, well, you know, I, I follow the behaviorist model of of changing people's actions, and I think that wow. IDs are one way that I could make them comply and if they comply on little things they'll comply on the big things i have bell i have yeah exactly or a bell i have more respect for the teachers who say that because i'm like all right well you know you may be evil but at least you're honest maybe explicitly exactly as opposed to the other people who are like well you know they told us safety so safety (laughs) and it's like come on look into it they told us they told us safety the safety guy said safety so safety is the safety thing (laughs) you go Says your safety, safety is all that's safety. Safety, 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 safety. Think of the children. Children, nine eleven. Oh wait, we're so if if the, the authorities know everything about you and you know nothing about them, that's how to keep things stable. You know, have this uh, power structure, right? And that's true. Yeah, that's you know, uh, nothing says stability like some people being forced to do things. And, uh, you know, that doesn't create conflict or anything, not an adversarial relationship no. in every single oh, manner. That thing kills me the absolute most. Like, I really wish I could just put little subtext in what teachers are saying. Teachers are like, well, you know, I don't understand. And then I would insert, you know, when we basically force students to do things and we react with them in an authoritarian manner and we show them that force is the only way to do things. And then I'd end my little insert there. And the teacher would continue saying why the students are so bitter and angry. It's like teachers like, I don't understand why the students are so violent. It's like, because you're violent to them all the time. Like, <laughs> because I, I, the entire system they're in is based on them being forced to be there. No one at, sees the violent inheritance. At, apparently, like, I swear to God, I have seen people in the hallways screaming, screaming at a student who's having an argument with another student going, this is not how you solve your problems. You do not solve your problems by screaming in the hallway. If you persist, I will take you down to ISS. And I'm like, Seriously? Like, you, you should model your method of conflict resolution, you know, if, if you're going to go for it. You're but saying practice what you preach there? I'm saying modeling. It's it's a method of instruction. So you're telling me this, instruction. telling me that, and you say there's a lesson that you're going to teach, but <laughs> <laughs> practice on that. <laughs> you got to show people. All right, so moving on to uh, some other topics here. Um, Egypt, according to a Wall Street Journal article, the secret rally that sparked an uprising, Egyptian protest organizers outsmarted police at the beginning of the uprisings, partly by declaring 20 public rally points, as well as one secret rally point. Mm. Um, essentially, the, the cops knew where all these, you know, where the 20 rally points were, and a lot of people gathered there, and they started trying to march towards the square, and there were riot cops all over, but... The 21st, only a handful of people knew about it. They gathered. They uh, started rallying, started being rowdy, and there were no cops around, so they started marching towards the square. And since more people uh, were into the uprising, they joined them. And that's uh, that's according to this article in the Wall Street Journal, which is interesting. 
Huh. Well, that that certainly is very interesting. I saw something in the New York Times today. In fact, I didn't really see it. I looked over somebody's shoulder while they were reading it on their phone, and, and he made uh, heavy yeah. breathing noises yeah. while he was doing it's it. It's like he he would say, he didn't mind so much. <laughs> no, he said latest updates on the uh, Middle Eastern uh, uprisings. And so it, it looks like there's a lot more focus on Iran at the moment, and I don't know who has decided to put the focus on Iran, whether it's really Iran's actually doing something, or the Iranian people are doing something against the Iranian regime, or it's the government trying to refocus their efforts on Iran by putting this out in the media that there's this much stuff happening in Iran as well. So it could be a combination of things, I don't know. But that seems to be a uh, a big push right now. Interesting. What creeped me out about the article uh, Darian's talking about a little bit is you get this impression that, you know, even when it comes to things like protests and things that look like mass movements of people, it's actually organized and coordinated by a small handful of people who are looking to manipulate the protest such that they end up with their desired outcome. So they plan this thing out and they said, you know, public protests here and then we are going to try to gain the support of the following disaffected people in this particular region as a means to continue our protests, which we can then march and do this with. Which, I don't know, I always get kind of creeped I, out when I, I hear know, about I that. I didn't really see it as that manipulative. I mean, it was deceptive because the cops weren't going to let them do anything openly. But I didn't really see it as particularly manipulative. I mean, people had... People didn't like the regime, and they were happy to uh, protest and happy to see someone else taking the risk for organizing it, I think. Yeah, but I mean, they they said specifically that they're going to have to gain the support of this section of poor people that you didn't see in the other parts of the protest. It like reminds me when you read things by the uh, the SDS saying that they're going to have to gain the support of the Panthers if they ever want to actually affect any major change. And it always, it always just kind of has this undertone like they don't... If you're trying to use somebody as a pawn to get something you want, then you don't really recognize their plight, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I suppose. Now, uh, speaking of the SDS, now, I was uh, around their counter-organization, the YAF, recently. So, okay. Yeah, the YAF has come out and condemned Ron Paul for being a winner at CPAC. And uh, so it, it was an interesting... I was at CPAC this past weekend, too, so that was something to, to talk about. So um, uh, was, what were you doing there? Uh, you know, uh, pledging my allegiance to the Republican Party, apparently. Uh, no, just kidding. So, uh, there's a lot more uh, anarchists and uh, uh, left libertarians down there now, so it's something very Why? strange going on over there. I, I don't really understand the conservative political action conference, like what possible value that would have besides disrupting it and driving people into disarray. Yeah, it, it's, it's exactly true. And we're, that's what we're here for. Or that was where we were there for. So we've uh, you know, gone down en masse, the actual Liberty supporters who were there. So that's a confluence of, say, Young Americans for Liberty, uh, Students for Liberty, uh, Campaign for Liberty, and... Uh, Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. And Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. Liberty and <laughs> Future Freedom Foundation, Independent Institute, and anybody else who's out there who has a little thing. I think even GOA might have been over there, because I saw no, uh, that dude. And... So all of us there, we, we keep having a more and more massive presence of this thing. We have uh, we did so well last year that uh, the bigots were offended at our presence. They were just saying, like, no, we can't have these people there. We can't have these people turning our conservative uh, political thing into a liberal leftist type of thing with tolerance of homosexuals and their behavior and tolerance of drug users and their dissent in our drug war and our terror war and all these things. And so a lot of them decided they simply weren't going to show up. 
They said, no, we're not going to come to uh, to CPAC then. Because, no, it's, it's our protest. Our, we're boycotting this event until you become more conservative again. Okay. And so they have uh, pretty much seeded the field. They were gone. And uh, we came out in force. And we were the dominant uh, numbers there easily. So uh, Ron Paul winning easily over uh, you know Mitt Romney and anybody else who was yeah, there. Yeah, I, I read a headline about how the, the, the dirty, unwashed libertarians, exactly. uh, uh, you know, uh, stalked that, uh, that straw poll, how oh, much yeah. he cheated. Yeah, I mean, the spammers are there in real life. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, we, we, we found out, you know, and Johnson, of course, Gary Johnson got uh, number three, so Ron Paul number one with 30%, and it was it was such an easy win, it's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, Ron Paul's, um, you know, uh, retinue, I'm going to say, uh, he has so many people there that they were able to pack the uh, the ballrooms that they're speaking at. And so you'll see like 95% Ron Paul supporters are like cheering their asses off whenever you know, Ron's up there and saying something. He's usually saying something pretty amazing. And uh, uh, the, one of the other big events that's going to be you know, major history, not just the major history, like this is the shaping of the American political scene now that uh, bigots no longer have pretty much a place in a lot of uh, political outlets that they simply have nothing now. That they don't have a place in a Democratic organization. They don't have a place in a Republican organization. They will simply go off into the shadows somewhere like segregationists of old. And this seems to be the end of it. What if they go like back to their roots and fire up a Klan rally or something let, like that? But let them. You know, that'll be even more interesting. I'd like to see them reveal themselves for who they are. And uh, you no, know, we can you know, round them up. You know, we could. Uh, I'll, I'll get a lot of nano machines and round up those Klansmen. <laughs> you know who has an interesting take on uh, the word conservatives? Actually, uh, John Taylor Gatto. And oh. I, I heard him talk about it at length, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, I stopped being conservative when they kind of forgot what the word." conservative meant he's like if you yeah. look it up in the dictionary it's like it's not foreign empire that's like the exact <laughs> opposite of what conservative means it's like he's he ran into the conservative party in new york so i was like you know whatever that means well, it's like what are you trying to conserve though I exactly mean, energy quo, the tradition they're like the green party yeah <laughs> <The> conservation <laughs> of energy party in in england they, that's what the conservatives have done they used to have the conservative symbol which was a hand with a torch you know symbolizing liberty and the uh, Promethean knowledge and all that, and arson, of course. <laughs> well, that goes <laughs> yeah. along with liberty. Yes. And so, but now, now their symbol is a tree. He's a green tree. That's this conservative symbol now, because obviously they're talking about the conservationist side of themselves, which makes a lot of sense you now for philosophically. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to conserve things. And they have become more back to their roots of the old days conservatives. But either way, that's uh, that's what we're seeing right now. So I, the other big story, of course, I'm saying first historical thing. Uh, the second yeah. historical thing is that uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld somehow got a uh, Defender of the Constitution, Defender of Liberty Award there at CPAC. And uh, people booed Donald Rumsfeld for one. And then Dick Cheney was called up to uh, to give a talk on there. And since the room was already filled with uh, Ron and Rand Paul supporters, people simply walked out of the room. There was, there was no support for this. And so even at CPAC, in the middle of Washington, D.C., someone like Dick Cheney can't even hold an audience together. See, I would, yeah. I would be kind of nervous, though, because Dick Cheney, he'll just kill you. That's like someone's going to accidentally he, tap him in the chest, and we'll see what happens. Well, I, I'm saying, like, Dick Cheney, there's a good chance. I, I would be more scared 
with Dick Cheney that it, than in any like open carry event that I have ever been to <laughs> because I think Dick Cheney could shoot somebody and and totally get away with he's it. He's not a good shot. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, he's not a good shot, but I also think he's like arch evil. You know, yes, he's, he is. It's it's amazing how evil the guy is. He scares me. I mean, Don Rumsfeld is pretty up there, too. I mean, Rumsfeld is a lesser evil than Mr. Cheney, but uh, Cheney is up there, and he can't he can't even get any respect there, which is kind of amazing. This is Washington. This is America. This is Washington, D.C. with this a bunch, of, Repu- well, a bunch I, of Republicans. I, I, yeah, but it's, it's the also... The Conservative Political Action Committee. But it's also yeah. jam-packed with exactly. Ron Paul people who this had is subsidized what, tickets. And, and this is what they need to understand, though, is that these people are going to be there at CPAC, and this is probably representing what CPAC is for from now until, say, the foreseeable future well, until I, something actually I mean, happens. I it's good that, uh, that a... You know, making it so there's not a conducive environment for a lot of people to organize politically that, um, you know, the infrastructure that was in place is now no longer um, theirs to use. So they would either have to start up something else or expend a lot of energy going after this other thing. Yes. That being said, um, I I mean, I guess it's a good use of resources for uh, libertarians who are kind of on the conservative end of things. Uh just because uh, you know it, it's like we said, it undermines that specific uh, evil power. Um, you're you're underestimating the evil though. Like, you got a bunch of Ron Paul people together. Dick Cheney will use his mind powers to open a wormhole, and he will kill. Underestimate the power. Exactly. Of the dark uh, side. He'll he'll kill everybody in the region, which could be good for the rest of us. There's a lot of innocent people that are going to die. Oh, Dick. <laughs> he doesn't have that kind of power. That's the kind of thing that gets you killed. Saying stuff like that on the interwebs radio. Let All him. Right. I want to see. I want to see him come here. Maybe not here, but wherever. Let's say that when I'm around. Yes. Let's invite Dick Cheney to. Uh, <laughs> Go, to I, I tried to invite uh, Obama to be on, but they never got back to me. Yeah, oh, eventually, man. they'll get back to you. Oh yeah, they'll knock on my door someday. <laughs> It's oh, like, hey, we're yep. libertarian anarchists, and we're totally opposed to everything that you stand for and say that you were for. So would you like to come and talk to us? <laughs> this yes, is how we yes, solve things, yeah. by talking it out. Hey, I read that Obama, according to the Globe, which I was reading today while somebody was making my sandwich, is apparently addicted to stimulants. Is their big argument? And that's that's why he's like losing so much weight. Addicted to, uh, to the Antichrist, also? <laughs> <laughs> No, I was thinking of getting That'd some amphetamines myself. No, just for like, in case I was going back to school, getting uh, just. Getting you want to get your degree done in like a year? I don't know. Just get a big pack of amphetamines. Like, yeah, I need to, I need to just coast through this right I now. I took thirty years off the end of my life. Got a degree in one year. It's cool. Exactly. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good investment. <laughs> amphetamines? Well, what you're you're not in amphetamines right now? You can't you can't Pretty predict high the future. Time <laughs> it's like you're in school. You know, like everybody else is on that stuff. Nah. That, that's how they get through graduate school. At least, like, a quarter of them are doing it. <laughs> Maybe not in your subject, but I mean, like, in yeah. no other subjects. In real subjects. Yes. You know, the <laughs> ones that matter. All those, <laughs> like what? <laughs> like any of the science. The non-communist ones. The non-communist <laughs> ones. Oh. Uh, all those, all right. All those that's, that's a reference out, to the, uh, the Libertarian Party people. video. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, also on Egypt, um, there's an article on InfoShop News, an anarchist report from Egypt. It was pretty well written. It uh, it had a little bit of an insurrectionary anarchist, uh, you know, uh, kind of shallowness to it, I think, but... All in all, worthy read. You know what's interesting? If you read the names attached to that letter, you know whose name's not 
on that letter? I'll give you a hint. It starts with D, and it rhymes with Arian Warden. What are you talking about? <laughs> Your Arian... name's not on the bottom of that letter. Arian Warden. I'm talking about an anarchist report from Egypt. On oh, oh, sorry. I thought yep. you were talking about the C4SS letter. Yeah, the letter. C4SS, uh, no, a black crescent letter. Yeah, I didn't see it for a while. So uh, now yeah, my, I figured, now my name's figured on you would have been on there. Of course, you know, the, there's a couple things in there I think could have been written differently, but you know, yeah, they're trying that's to how do it goes. As, as simple language I, as possible. So I would like to see what the Google Translate version says. It's, it's probably, probably like, awful. Dear squids of the apocalypse, <laughs> we want you to know that we love flowers. <laughs> yeah, Google Translate, not the best way to do things. But they're, they're having actual humans look at it. Yeah, so. there's like a big call for uh, for humans that can translate and humans that can speak different languages and, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, you should just call Dan Patrick. Maybe he could do it. <laughs> no, he he took Farsi. Oh well, have him do it anyway. Right. Put it in Farsi <laughs> and and then into the fuel tank of an airplane. Oh, oh wow, low blow. All right, so uh, so again, the, like, what uh, Bosco's talking about now is uh, Center for Stateless Society C four SS dot org. There's a feature on it, um, basically trying to get more anarchist uh, oriented stuff into uh, the Arabic language, especially um, with the situation going on in Egypt and other uh, Middle Eastern countries, to try to get them away from a state solution and more on a uh, people power anarchist solution. That sounds like uh, they've got a a good expression of people power, so now would be a good time to be introduced to those ideas. Yeah, and the uh, with the InfoShop news article is saying that uh, you know, a lot of people they they had the idea. Oh, okay, um, what now? Because they they didn't really. I mean, this is just you know from one article. I mean, but the the idea that. You know, there was uh, people powered and uh, toppling the regime, but they're not exactly sure um, what comes next. Uh, the Democratic Republic is the default, so that's kind of what they're going for. Um, I read an interesting article, actually, uh, talking about how you need to build counter power and then you need to create a power vacuum. Huh. I forget was who it wrote an it. Authority vacuum? It was... Yeah, that yeah. Sounds like a bad idea. Power it. vacuums, authority vacuums. I don't know. I'm sure Cheney's in on that. He knows how to create an authority vacuum. But uh, actually, a, I really like. So I really well. like that article, Darian. That that article tipped me over the edge. I ended up upping my monthly contribution after that. Excellent. Between that one and the one uh, that the the guy we had on last week, uh, what was his name? Demato. Demato. Yeah, wrote uh, that reference conquest of bread. Between those two, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, they're doing it. They're doing okay. You know what bugs me though is it doesn't show up on the little like the little widget that they have that says, uh -huh. you know, we've raised X amount of dollars of our goal. Yeah. It doesn't show up when you have the recurring payment thing. Huh. Yeah, that's because computers just haven't caught up with us yet. Yeah. True, but they take bitcoins. And they certainly beat the hell out of humans in jeopardy. So. Yeah, did you see that? <laughs> of course I saw that. Of course you saw that. But did you see the article about uh Watson's mistakes? Yeah. And how they had to reshoot a section of the um of the show because Watson had uh, answered a or uh, answered the uh, the answer what is it, question the answer yes, whatever yes he provided the response <laughs> but uh, uh, the problem was that uh, Watson can't actually hear the responses of the humans and so under normal circumstances if someone answered incorrectly but in a certain you know, had the adjectives or something to describe what was going on someone fixed like the noun of the the sentence then that would be accepted because it's in the context of what someone got wrong. But since Watson doesn't know 
the context of other people's answers. In one case, he actually answered the same way as as wrong as someone else. And then in another case, he answered, and it was the correct topic, but he didn't put the right adjectives in to indicate uh, what was going on. So they, they had to cut the show and redo it with him getting it wrong because uh, at first Alex Trebek allowed it to go through because as a human, it would have had context. But right. in the in the uh, scope of Watson, it did not. So, yeah, there's uh, they have a documentary that aired on PBS. Uh, it was right after Nova, I think. So Nova Science Now, the Nova. Then they had that one, uh, and they're talking about um, uh, the IBM folks. I think may have produced this. And so they're showing uh, Dave Ferrucci and all the other guys who were really responsible for creating Watson and putting this together over the last three years, and uh, then interviewing Alex Trebek and showing how this was. And on the uh, the Jeopardy show, they're actually making reference to the documentary when you see it cut up. And I think uh, another one came on tonight, so I'll have to torrent the episode tonight and see what happens. Um, but I'm no, really cool. looking forward to it. It's going to so, be a very interesting, interesting future. Whenever I hear about this sort of stuff, I'm always thinking that there's got to be groups out there taking this technology or the ideas from this technology and still working on the good old-fashioned Turing test, right? There's yeah. got to be people doing that somewhere. Probably. Okay. Uh, I mean, in in this regard, though, the the Watson, from what I understand, is specifically designed for this type of right, scenario. Yeah, that's, that's what I heard. So, too. so still not yeah. as good as a human. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, not but yet. no, we'll probably beat a human at trivia every time. Wait, though. wait till no. we get our uh, our computer co-host on the show. <laughs> then he'll we be know. good. Yeah. He'll be good at talking about trivial things. Yeah, see, I was is... thinking we just hook up Doctor Spatzo. Yeah, this is exactly what Dr. you'll talk Spazzo. about. Spatzo. Did you hear what those clowns <laughs> in Congress did? Lives. What a bunch of clowns. <laughs> so how does he keep up with the times like that? Yeah. Uh, that'd be good. I, yeah. I really think it's too bad that you couldn't just hook a computer up to like you know with the same kind of interface, but to all of the internet, so that you end up with a computer that's like the worst memes and just awfulness. You try to talk to the computer, <laughs> and the computer like brings up random things from lolcats and stuff like that. Well, it's like that time in uh, college when you hooked up uh, MegaHal to a oh uh, yeah. To uh, Instant Messenger and then train the brain on all Nine Inch Nails lyrics, and it was the most depressed thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> that that was a neat plugin because you have the different MegaHal brains, and you could have it get training data over uh, over AIM, um, working with with Bile's AIM client. You could have it get training data from or talk to different people. So you could put two people on the same brain. So you take two people that hate each other and you both have them train the same mega hell brain and, you know, phrases that one person ends up using ends up coming across to the other person. And it was a good time. It was fun to watch. Especially since you made it uh, initiate conversations. Oh yeah. I had an annoy mode. So you could just every 30 seconds, it would prompt it with something random and whatever the response was, it would spit that at the person. It was good. It was like automated trolling. Someday we will have computers good enough to troll like twenty percent of the population all at the same time. We're gonna have to get a troll troll for that. <laughs> <laughs> a uh, counter troll, dude. Yeah. There's like uh, the spam I'm getting on my blog and stuff. It's, it's it's getting almost to the point where I'm like, oh, that almost sounds like an actual person would have written that. But That's then it's, it's like, yeah. then it's like the website is like penis enlargement info. <laughs> Oh, I send you those. Oh, okay. That's that's why it's so real. It's a hint. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hint. Yeah. Okay, so we got uh, Zach Fix commenting in the chat room saying we have uh, we have Darren for that and for trolling the people. Oh, there you go. A time cube computer. Yes. It says, <laughs> no, keep honking. I'm reloading. That's time, what it says. Time cube. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, speaking of memes, have you seen the Bill O'Reilly? Uh, oh yes, meme? yeah. 
It's like, uh, you know, yes, no, marijuana is still illegal. You can't explain that. <laughs> People pay me to talk. You can't explain that. You can't explain that. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Bill O'Reilly had uh, some segment where he was talking about how tides prove the existence of God. He and does that's... this multiple times whenever he talks to uh, uh, disbelievers or things like that. And he says the reason he believes, you know, the tides come in, the tides go out. You can't explain that. So, that's, so their God did that. So when someone tries to explain it through science, he had this uh, response video, which I saw from a Colbert clip that was on YouTube. And he's basically <laughs> like, okay, things. sure. I, he's like trying to be really dismissive. He's like, yeah. it's like I'm not impressed. Like, okay, there's a moon. Yeah. Where did the moon come from? Yeah. The, the moon goes up. The sun goes down. There's never a misstep in communication. Yeah. Like, I forget the exact phrase, it's but like, it was like, know, in nobody communication. Nobody else has a moon. You know, like, Mars doesn't have a moon. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what are like, you talking about? <laughs> what, I think my favorite part, though, was the uh, the lapse in communication. I forget exactly what word was, like, like basically a lapse in communication. Like, I'm just picturing, like, in Bill O'Reilly's mind, the sun has this big smile face on it like in a three-year-old's drawing and it's like talking to the moon like okay time to come up now <laughs> oh man yeah i was actually looking for uh, i was on meme generator i was looking for random crap to put up in the classroom yeah and um there's some really good ones my personal favorite was a picture of bill nye and it just said have trouble with science you should try religion and i'm like oh <laughs> want to put that up so bad can't put it up can't put that so up. I, I had to settle for a, a big picture of cthulhu for president that i put up because i actually gave them cthulhu in a problem on one of their quizzes and they're like how do you say this i'm like you don't know who cthulhu is no. it's going to be even worse for you then Dude, we're 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 post post gen x uh, gen y kind of things that's who you're talking to huh? that's they have true no idea what this stuff is that's that's so, very true. Like, but aren't you? Damn kids is, isn't Cthulhu Hughes not supposed to be named? So maybe, uh, maybe yeah, maybe, maybe they're maybe just strict just... adherence. One of the funniest things I saw happen in class regarding the internet was I was trying to explain to this girl what trolling was, and she did not get it. Oh, boy. And then in real life, she proceeded to get trolled by like eight people at once, <laughs> and she she like totally took the bait. So it's like this this one guy says to her, "It's like, well, it's like if I told you that." Uh, I hate all disabled people and they should die. And her response was, why do you hate disabled people? I'm like, oh, no, no, don't do this. And, and she just so it she just kept going for yeah. it and going for it. And, you know, I, I'm a troll at heart, so I, I didn't stop. Oh. Them. I, I, I was like, OK, we can we can see how far this goes. This is 